Hello, everyone, and welcome to This Week in Space Telescopes, a weekly podcast dedicated to bringing you the latest science and mission updates from humanity's eyes in space. My name is Tony Darnell from Deep Astronomy, and joining me is my friend and colleague, Dr. Carol Christian, scientist in residence at the Center for Emerging Media. I'm happy you're joining us on our journey towards understanding our cosmos using some of the most sophisticated instruments ever built. This week, Carol and I are back from our somewhat unintended hiatus to talk about the James Webb Space Telescope. It turns out the assembly is complete at the Goddard Space Flight Center, and now we turn our attention to the testing phase of the mission. So Carol and I wanted to give you an update on the latest in the James Webb Space Telescope, as well as what to look forward to in 2017. Hello, everybody, and welcome back to another Twist podcast that is This Week in Space Telescopes. I want to, first of all, just thank everybody for kind of bearing with us on our little unplanned hiatus. We were kind of gone for a couple of weeks because of various other uh, commitments that uh, that Carol and I had. So we're back now, and I want to thank you for your patience, not to mention there was the, uh, there was the Thanksgiving holiday to contend with. But we are back on track now, and we're going to be talking about all kinds of cool stuff on space telescopes. And let me find out if Carol's out there. Are you there, Carol? Yes, I am. Hi, there Tony. Hello, people. <laughs> so it's been a busy time, hasn't it? Absolutely. Yeah. Well, it's kind of crazy. I'm, I'm glad we're back and we're we're back to recording uh, our podcast again. A lot of people were asking me about it. So today, what Carol and I would like to do is I, it's a it's a good time. We're at the get it, we're approaching the end of the year, and a major milestone has just happened in the James Webb Space Telescope project. And we wanted to tell you a little bit about it, get kind of caught up on what's happened uh, with the mission, and then tell you where we're headed from here uh, over the next over 2017. As many of you know, it's getting ready to launch in October 2018. So. Um, we're excited about it. And this big announcement was that on, on November 2nd, just earlier this month, we're recording on November 30th, Carol and I, uh, NASA announced that the assembly of the James Webb Space Telescope is complete. And I have to tell you, there was a little confusion about this when I first started doing noticing this, because when I went to NASA's webpage, I didn't see anything really about it. I just saw that the primary mirror segment testing had been done. But I, I did see that there was a, a press conference and a whole bunch of other stuff that was uh, announcing that JWST is complete. That means that they've got the ISIM module. That stands for uh, Instrument Science or... Um, Integrated. Thank you. <laughs> Integrated Science Instrumentation Module. Yes. Uh, all 18 mirror segments, uh, hexagonal mirror segments, have been installed yep. on the uh, back plane. And all the little infrastructure bits, the power supplies and all the stuff that power all the instruments, has all been put together in at the Goddard Space Flight Center, where everybody from around the country who's been building this thing has shipped them there, and, Jada, and uh, Goddard has put them all together. And uh, they just completed that earlier this month. And so... Now, what we're going to be doing is uh, uh, looking forward for a lot of testing. But I want to remind you guys that the James Webb Space Telescope is the largest telescope that's 
ever been put into space. And it's so large that it has to be folded up into the rocket kind of before they launch it. And then they're going to unfold it while it goes out on its way to the final orbit point, uh, which is a million and a half kilometers away from Earth. So it's got an extremely complicated design, but it will ultimately be more powerful than Hubble in a variety of ways, especially in the infrared portions of the spectrum. This is primarily, well, this is solely an infrared telescope. And that means that it's going to be looking out at a very specific wavelength range uh, into the universe, which will help us do a lot of things. It, right. It's they're, you know, uh, it's uh, a very useful part of the spectrum, isn't it, Carol? Exactly. And I just want to put a plug into my fave, which is Hubble Space Telescope. Just well, it's mine, too. <laughs> Um, Hubble looks at the visual, which is the same as what we can see with our eyes. It has some infrared, what we call the near infrared, but James Webb will be the near infrared and the far, farther infrared. But Hubble also has the ultraviolet. And we were just uh, talking today at the project that Hubble is the only instrument that is able to do diagnostic um, studies of stars and galaxies. Uh, in the ultraviolet. And so it's a very precious telescope. The good news is that all of the systems are still running great. And we had projected we were going to make it to 2020. And now we think it's going to be, we hope, five years beyond that. So Really? Oh, that is great news. I hadn't so, heard that. That's so wonderful. we think that at least some part of the telescope might last that long. That's fingers crossed, but there isn't any indication that there's anything going bad right now. So well, the it's project engineering projections are that things are you know, wearing at a rate that takes it beyond 2020, which is good news because James Webb, which launches late in 2020, 2018, we will have at least, it looks like, if all things go well, two years of overlap of the two telescopes. And that's going to be very, very powerful to have both the Hubble and James Webb. And if Chandra is still working, then we'll have the X-ray as well. So it's going to be a really remarkable time in astronomy. And I know you and I have discussed, is there anything left in astronomy? I think the door is opening. <laughs> and we're going to be seeing things not one of the things is to look back further in time. We've had some hints with Hubble data uh, of looking back, but James Webb, it's one of its major tasks is to look at the very, very early universe. Things way out in the universe are obscured somewhat by dust and they are redder. So that's one reason for infrared. And also because the universe is expanding, that also causes the intrinsic wavelength of the light emitted by those distant galaxies to be reddened. So that's why we go to the red to look distant in the universe. But also we're going to be looking at exoplanets, more nearby things, not so far out. Exoplanets, what are they made of? Doing some diagnostics there. Um, we want to look at the before planets are formed, but the protoplanetary disks, what's in them? How do they form? Why do they have gaps? Um, when do the pl planets form in there? How much materials in the disk? You know, all these questions that'll be probed. Um, looking for signs of life. What are the tracers? Things like um, carbon monoxide, meth methane, which is common, actually, water. And uh, the tricky one is ozone. Also, 
learning about nearby galaxies, doing detailed studies in dusty regions of galaxies. How do stars form in other galaxies? Uh, Does a star know what kind of galaxy it's in? You might turn the question upside down. So James Webb is going to address all of these scientific questions and then some that we don't even imagine. I mean, think back on Hubble. There were a lot of things about dark matter, dark energy, the way supernova work, um, being able to see exoplanets. We didn't know all that was going to happen 26 years ago when it was launched. So James Webb will have a bright future. We're going to do some of the things we're planning for, but all kinds of things that we don't even know we're going to do yet. So it's very exciting. Yeah, it is. And it was, uh, you know, you bring, you bring up an interesting point about the, um, the, the, the ultraviolet part of Hubble. And I want to, you know, what I find interesting is that we always call James Webb Space Telescope Hubble's successor, but it kind of leaves out a couple of really important things that Hubble does already. So in some ways, it's sort of a partial successor, certainly in the infrared. It does a a better job. Yeah, it does a better job and there's overlap. But the two, I mean, a long time ago, we always hoped that the two would actually overlap and be in space at the same time. And James Webb got, you know, got delayed. Hubble gets older. Right now, it looks like we might make it. We might have these two telescopes in orbit for at least two years uh, at the same time, which would be really exciting. Yeah, and so that's really good news to hear that everything is, as you put it, wearing out at a rate that would put it well into a little bit further than I think most people were hoping. So, However, before we do all that, there's a bunch of stuff that has to be done with JWST. Uh, okay, it's been put together. Now what? Lots of testing. That's right. So yeah, that's so that's the part where we're where everybody's turning their attention to now. They have built JWST. The components have been there, and it's important to note too that when they were looking, when they were working on JWST, a lot of stuff had to be invented that didn't exist yet. And so all of the really uh, uh, innovative stuff that that had to do with building JWST is complete. It's put together. But now they're they're turning their attention to testing uh, what they've put together. And this is the thing, folks. I mean, this is hugely important. They got to get this right. All of the possible ways they can think to test, they have to do now on the ground because this isn't like Hubble in one key respect. Hubble had the luxury of being able to have spacecraft and astronauts go up, or the space shuttle specifically, to go up and fix it when things wore out or needed to be replaced or whatever or needed to be repaired in some way. Uh, JWST doesn't have that. So everything's got to work. It's got to work for the amount of time they built it. And then uh, to get all the science they've done. So this means they've got to do an extraordinary, I think it's extraordinary, but of course, spacecraft and being in space is hard. This is just the kind of thorough testing that uh, all spacecraft has to do. So they're doing some, some really thorough stuff. And I think it's even kind of strange. One of them is acoustic testing. They're going to put loud noises up against the rocket to simulate a rocket launch. So they're going to vibrate it, of course, because obviously rocket launches are very, are very rough things. Uh, they're going to also, uh, 
put it to temperature testing. And the way they're going to do that, uh, we'll talk about a little bit more in the podcast, but this is kind of amazing. They've got a huge vacuum chamber that they're going to put the entire telescope in at Johnson Space Flight Center in Houston, and they're going to cool the spacecraft to the temperature that it's going to actually be operating at, which is about 39 Kelvin. And so this has to be very, very cold, and they're going to test it in this really unique chamber. And then they're going to turn it around in different orientations, and they're going to do all of this testing again uh, to, to make sure it all works works and the vibrations and whatever can go wrong, they can study and and, and understand before the launch happens. And so, I, will, I will remind everybody that it has been turned at many different orientations during its assembly. I mean, I remember when everybody was horrified that they turned the mirrors face down, but they, they did that because they had to install the ISIM, the instrument package. Um, so it has been in it mechanically has been in many different orientations. Of course, it's in a gravity field because it's on the earth. It will not be in a gravity field when it's out there in space, but it has been turned every which way. But the difference is for the testing, they're going to turn it every which way. And then they're going to use the vibration test, the acoustic test, the temperature test to make sure that nothing shakes loose. Nothing is orientation dependent. And that's that's very yeah, that's a good point because we're, because important. it won't have gravity, uh, the gravity of Earth uh, when it finally gets launched out there. They need to make sure, okay, well, it worked in that way. Now let's turn it this way I so can't. the gravity isn't quite working the same way on all of these uh, components. So that's, that's another example of being very thorough. So that's right. good. So it, it also, I was also going to say it has this, the sun shield. The sun shield is kind of a scary thing. If you look at a picture of it, it has five layers. Yeah. And, um, they ha- the big the big concern about it is that it has to unfold. They need to be able to fold it up and uh, to launch it and then unfold it. So they want to test that several times in a variety of positions just to make sure. So th- think of of um, you know what think of something you have to put together. You can put it together where you're making use of gravity and and so hold it up. So the bottom side is 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 you know trying to drive down towards the earth and the top is pushing down, the bottom's falling out. Then you turn it over and it does the opposite. So that's not quite like zero G, but it is testing the out outside bounds of that situation where Things are going to be in different orientations, um, so you can't just build it sitting on a table and say, "Well, I guess it'll work in space." So you have to put it in every orientation. And they have to do that with the sunshade too, which is pretty scary because it's enormous. It has to work, and it, it kind of got one shot to un- one shot to fold it properly, and one shot to uh, you know unfold it. And so it can't. It can't. Nothing awful can even a little bit can happen while they're folding it up to put it in the rocket. Cause there's one, there's just one sunshade assembly. They got to fold it perfectly and unfold it perfectly. I don't think if, I can't think of a single mission, maybe next to that, uh, uh, the curiosity rover when it went down that they, you know, of anything more nail biting than the deployment of JWST. But well, we- I, I, also I would say rovers, we understand we have golf carts and cars and stuff like that. So in a, in a sense, you know, That's we, a good point, actually, we yeah. have vehicles that have <laughs> cameras and stuff that extend out and we have cranes and, you know, all the, these kind of things. We have vehicles that have stuff that, come, you know, spring out and take pictures and all that. We have nothing that does this. Yeah, that's uh, very good. No point. analogy. We have no, you know, 
similar thing that we use every day. Um, there, there are some analogies, but but imperfect ones. So these little thin right. sheets of stuff, reflective material that act as a sunshade, or it's a it's a scary thing. Yeah, so 2017 is going to be a big year for this mission. A lot of testing is going to go on, as we mentioned at the top of the podcast. It's scheduled for launch, and it's on track for launch for October 2018. It's going to go off on or October 2018, and it's going to go off on an Ariane 5 rocket from French Guiana. So that'll be where they launch it. They're going to transport it from a barge or on a barge out there to uh, for the launch. So uh, and so the 2017 is when they're going to be doing most of the. Most of the testing, we're going to take a quick break. And when we come back, we're going to dive into some of this just a little bit more, give you a little bit more detail. So stay with us. All right, everybody, welcome back to This Week in Space Telescope. I'm Tony Darnell, and I'm with my good friend, Dr. Carol Christian. And we're talking about... Hey, we're talking about the James Webb Space Telescope reaching an important milestone back in November. They finished the assembly and now they're turning their attention to testing it. And this is going to be one of the most important um, parts of the, well, there's no unimportant part of the mission, I guess, but this is certainly a big one. Uh, but the, and so they're testing the telescope and it's really already begun at Goddard Space Flight Center. Um, and as we mentioned before, they're not going to have the luxury of being serviced in space. So they got to get this right the first time. And, um, one of the first steps is to make sure that this thing can withstand a launch. There's a lot of shaking. There's a lot of noise. There's all kinds of stuff going on during a launch. And so they really want to just kind of, I don't want to say abuse it because they don't want to tear it up, but they don't want, it's not destructive testing. It's just making sure that the thing can withstand a rocket launch and understanding its behavior during a launch. So at Goddard, that's what they're doing. They're going to do first thing. Then, when they're done with that, it'll all be moved to Texas on this really cool truck that they made, especially for the James Webb Space Telescope. And I'll try to find a picture of it and put it on the webpage for you guys to see because it's a really cool truck. Uh, and then, uh, after they, and they're going to test it in the vacuum chamber, the chamber A that we're going to talk about a little bit more and just here in a bit. Um, and they're going to, they're going to do something very important in Texas in that chamber. One of the things, in addition to making sure that it can work at the environment and the cold temperatures of space and that it can survive the launch, they're going to focus it, which yeah, well, is huge. Us Hubble people know all about <laughs> I didn't want to bring it up because I know it's a sore issue. <laughs> well, and the thing, I mean, the truth be told, for all telescopes, um, focusing is an issue and focusing can change in space. And so all the space telescopes, well, just focusing changes on telescopes on the ground too, but you just yeah. go up to them and you readjust them. Um, so even you have by changing have, the temperature outside changes. Exactly. The focus. Exactly. Yeah. And so you have to have mechanisms that allow you to change the focus a little bit. But the main thing is that you want the initial focus to be correct. And then you make small adjustments around that. So the whole yeah. telescope is about 6.5 meters or about 21 feet. Um, well, let me just yeah. mention, Carol, that after they do Texas and they do the focus testing, they're going to move it to California for some final test assembly there. And I just wanted to finish that, yeah. that train of where they're going to be testing. Okay, go ahead. So what they measure is what's called the center of curvature. So it has to, the, the mirror, which is in segments, each segment has its own particular shape. They've been assembled perfectly. 
each each one is has a particular place. It was put in. It seemed to be working mechanically, but then and they are beautiful. Anybody who's seen them, or you can look at pictures, you can see that they're just perfect. There's no like ripples or anything that would be easy to see if there were any imperfections. But now what they need to do is make sure that all the light um, they they have an assembly that shines light and then it, it and makes sure it comes to focus. But they also have measuring instruments that measure the shape of the of the main mirror and they use all kinds of light sources and also holograms to make sure there are no imperfections in in the mirror and you compare it what you really do is a comparison test to what you expect it to be and then you compare it and that that gives you when you take a difference between the expectation in the real that tells you where if there are any imperfections where they are rather than just saying oh okay i just see if it'll focus so this is an important thing in optics is that this difference testing is much more sensitive than just focusing so um it would be like if you have your camera and you knew what the focus was supposed to look like because from the manufacturer you had some image and then you could have when you got the camera you could take a picture of the same image and see if you could focus it as well and what you do is take a difference between the two and the little tiny imperfection would then come out and you would know whether you had a perfect lens or not so that's that's how they do Right. Uh, and, and I just wanted to add to that, that the center of curvature test they did at Goddard is what they're calling the reference test. This is what, after they move it to Texas and then to California, they'll make sure they'll compare it with, because Goddard is the only place where they still have the test equipment that they used before and after assembling the mirror. So they want to do it all there at Goddard. And then when they move it around to other places, they can compare it, like Carol was saying. So each one of these mirror segments have, have been previously tested. So they, they have been tested and accepted. And now the whole thing has to work together. So all the segments have to be put next to each other and they have to work together. So even if they were all perfect, if they don't match up well, well, so what? Then you have a, a crappy mirror. So it, that's really huge, isn't it, Carol? I mean, it's not like yeah. the Hubble primary, which was one peak, big piece one of big, glass. So segmented, but just so people don't, you know, uh, get uh, anxious over this, there are many examples of multi mirrors. Uh, telescopes that are on the ground, very large ones where there are segments and they've all been matched up just fine and the optics are perfect and all that. And they, they take beautiful, beautiful data. So it's not like this is the first time that a segmented mirror has ever um, been assembled. Yeah, Keck, Keck is like that too, isn't it? Yes. So no, there's no, no, no. Hawaii, Arizona, there's there are quite a few around the world and they are quite large. So, um, and in fact, there are plans to build even larger ones. So the idea of the segmentation is not really new. It's just that you have to be able to have actuators, which adjust it so that it, it presents a perfect unified surface. Um, not, not just each segment being perfect, but that they all go together well. So that's a really important test. Yeah, and that's really the only way to go for really large uh, diameter objectives. Well, I mean, you look especially at especially since you have to fold it up. 
Exactly. Well, yeah, they got to fold it up. That helps that as well. But also the uh, the ground based telescopes you were talking about. We're talking thirty meters and some you know the thirty meter telescope. They're I mean, they're just getting bigger and bigger. And so one giant finding one giant piece of glass to be able to do all of that. Is and you can't support a piece of glass up big. Even <laughs> if know, you could you make it, you can't. You can't do it. It becomes too thick in yeah. order to make it rigid. So you have to have thinner slices, and you have to then build a support structure on the backside. Right. So that that was one big important part at, at uh, that they did at Goddard this past month was getting that center of curvature reference point made. So now we're going to be moving on to getting the, the launch stuff like we talked about. But then after that, it goes to Texas. Now I want to talk a little bit about this thing they've done in Texas called Chamber A. Now, it is the largest vacuum chamber in the world and it was built it's not new it was built in i guess the early 60s uh to uh support the apollo missions where it was large enough it was it's 55 feet in diameter which is 16.8 meters and it's 90 feet tall or 27.4 meters and the door to getting in weighs 40 tons and you have to open it and close it using hydraulics and all kind of stuff like that but anyway uh it's the only thing that there was even remotely available to sort of test this thing. And it had, I guess it either sat in, in mothballs or it was some kind of uh, exhibit for a while for many, many years until they came along for JWST and it, and asked uh, NASA's Johnson engineers to rebuild it, remodel the interior for the James Webb space telescope. And it took them three years to get it ready. Uh, and they did this back in, I guess it was 2013. It was ready to go. Uh, they were, it was, it was built up and some of the things that they upgraded on it. Well, it's, they got a, a new helium system, which is hugely important to getting things cold. It's also got a liquid hydrogen, a liquid nitrogen system. And then of course an airflow management system to move all this cold stuff around. So it is, uh, this giant, enormous, uh, cold refrigerator one of the biggest you're ever going to see uh, because it gets down to the kinds of temperatures that we need for for james webb the uh it gets down to about minus 400 well about 440 degrees fahrenheit that's minus 261 celsius or 11 degrees kelvin now that's a little bit higher 11 degrees higher than absolute zero but it's also a little bit um uh, colder than what James Webb actually needs. It needs to get down to about 39 Kelvin when it, or 38 Kelvin when it gets to, into space. So it, it's plenty able to meet the need of doing the kinds of testing. Uh, and what I thought was kind of cool when I was reading about this thing was it says that, you know, NASA, they like to use these weird, uh, comparisons and I had to laugh at this. It goes, the comparison they used on the website about Chamber A, this is from Johnson's web, website, Johnson Space Flight Center's website. It says, when it's full of air, the air in the chamber weighs 25 tons, which is about 12 and a half Volkswagen Beetles, because they want you to be able to visualize <laughs> what 25 tons is. Uh-huh. And, and of course, when they remove all the air, they suck all the air out to make it a vacuum chamber. Then the, le- the, the mass left inside will be the equivalent of a half of a staple. That's a staple from a stapler, okay? So anyway, they can get quite a bit of air out of there. And uh, I had to laugh at those comparisons. I just thought it was funny. So, um, so I, <laughs> Really? Seriously? Yeah, um, I know. Um, oh, 12 and a half uh, Volkswagen Beetles. Uh, okay, right. good. So I, 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 I do, I do want to point out also, though, that we're, mostly the things that you've been talking about have been the large structure in the mirror, 
There are some very complicated instruments on this telescope, and those instruments have been in testing for a long time. So at Goddard, right? And like in had, the cardinal stuff. Yes, and that yeah. and the instrument pa- each instrument has been tested, and then the package was tested. They have a, a large cryogenic chamber that the instruments were put in. Um, the instruments are put in there, and then they run them to see if they will function. At those temperatures, they have to do calibrations. Right, I'm glad you brought that up. They did um, do that at Goddard, yes. And in fact, during the test campaigns, they actually found that one of the instruments, um, they had some degradation in the detectors. So they had to be replaced. This is because it's taken so long to build the telescope. And also some of the testing showed that the early detectors um, were not, you know, just were not surviving. So they replaced them. So they have newer detectors in them now. Another amazing thing about some of the instrumentation is one of the instruments has what's called a micro shutter array. And so the micro shutter array has, well, as you can guess, a bunch of little shutters. And some of those were not working so well after the the vacuum, the vibration, the acoustic, and the temperature test. So they had to replace and rework the instrument from that standpoint. Another thing that they, in addition to the sensitivity of the detectors, they also have to look at something which is really important that most of you never worry about with your smartphones, which is the dark current. Now, if you're interested in dark current, uh, hey you, Carol, what's dark current? It is, <laughs> it is the, and you can you can do this test yourself. Which is the dark current is that these dete- that all detectors have because they are electronic devices and they have power applied to them. There are little electrons running around in there, and depending on how well the detector is made, it will have a very low dark current. Now for stuff we use in our smartphones, we usually don't care because we have plenty of light. And so the dark current doesn't matter. But when you're looking at an astronomy and you're trying to get every little bit of light that you can in a very dark environment, those little electrons running around create noise in the image. The way you can do this is to set your smartphone up to take a long exposure, but cover the camera and make sure it's completely dark and let the long exposure, and try several of them and see what you get. Now, you may even get some cosmic rays. It's pretty interesting. That's right. Yeah, you'll uh, see a bunch of noise. Pixels. So um, those are the kinds of things that they had to see how they perform with temperature and also that they don't get worse after the vibration and the acoustic testing. So in addition to this big structure we're talking about, all those little instruments have to work perfectly as well. And all the little mechanisms on those instruments have to work perfectly in addition to that. So even though there's large chambers for the telescope assembly, there's also specialized chambers for the instruments as well. Yeah, I'm glad you brought that up because that 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 has already been happening at Carter. They have a not quite as big, or nowhere near as big, a vacuum chamber there. And so when they put like near cam in it, they did all the things you said. So yeah, that is at least one level so of testing that's already near been near infrared cam near infrared camera. So we call it 
near cam. Near cam, that's um, right. There's also near spec, which is but, near. But spec. also, when you focus a mirror, you need to know that the instrument is going to be at the right place. So they have to test the focus of the of the, the focus assembly of the instrument as well. So when you match the two things together, that they will work together. Yeah. So yeah. So and that and now the big the big testing that we, we were talking about that requires the large clean or the large chamber is is the next step. And uh, what they're so what they've done is they put a very large clean room right next to chamber A uh, at Johnson, and that's where they're going to put the that's where they're going to put the spacecraft and get it ready for testing. And the the test at Johnson will take ninety days. It'll be there for three months, and but the first thirty days of the test will consist of just getting the chamber cooled down. They're going to and so after they've put it in, which they usually do by a. Um, crane back in the days of apollo they used to put a big crane in you could put like the service module and the command module in and all that kind of stuff and they did that with a with a crane but the what the jwst is so big that it's going to be folded up and then they're going to wheel it into the big chamber so that's how they're going to get it in then they're going to take 30 days uh, to cool the chamber down yeah. and then do their testing so this is a big deal to get that thing in there yeah that's of course a lot one- of engineers busy yeah, that's right. And so, uh, of course, once it's in there, they're going to put, a, you know, all the, as we talked about, orientations are important to test it, shaking it, turn on loud noises, all of that stuff. But again, as I point out, what I think is the most, one of the most important things is they're going to focus it at Johnson. And, uh, they're, that's one of the places where they can un- open the uh, primary at temperature, uh, and see how the focus does because it is very temperature sensitive. And, uh, so that'll be a, an important step in the testing. And so once well, you, you, and you're going to say that once you launch it, it's going to take two full weeks to completely unfold it. But I'm wondering how long it's going to take to fold it. It's going to be scary because that means they're done. So I don't oh, you mean be, once they do the final folding yeah, of the sun shield well, and the origami? When they're all the, done, somebody has to say, okay, fold it up. Yeah, I think Somebody that's going to happen in California. That. Yeah, I think that's going to happen in California yeah, because I think Northrop scared. Grumman is building the maybe, sunshine. Maybe so. That's not what yeah. I'm saying. I'm yeah. saying I'm glad I'm not the person that has to say that. I know. Yeah, really. I would be. It's like it's like folding I mean, someone's parachute, I mean, isn't it? I mean, you wouldn't sleep all night. It's like, okay, tomorrow I'm going to say, let's fold it. So <laughs> I, I, I don't know. It's very scary. Anyway. I agree. So gonna, because once it's in there, it's, all it. bets are off. They fold it. That's it. And then the next time we see anything it'll be unfolded in space oh, so uh, i can't imagine yeah, what that would it'll be like. amazing but you know two years from now that'll be all over and it will be in the process um as we do our podcast in november of being unfolded and starting testing so that's pretty right. exciting and after right, that so. it'll go for five years at least it has enough fuel for 10 and it could it could last longer, as we know. We always hope, but they they build it build it for five years for sure and ten um, with crossed fingers, and uh, then we'll see we'll see what happens. Yeah, and I think the hydrazine that's going to be in there uh, that we're talking about that's going to be lasting for ten years. That's the kind that's that's to I think I don't I don't think it's used for slewing. Is it, Carol? Do you know? They use reaction wheels, yeah. I think, for that as well. But I'll, I'll double check on that. I'm not totally sure. But uh, yeah, so that's going to be the limiting factor is the fuel on board for 10 years. So who knows? Maybe in 2028, we might have technology to go refill it. But I wouldn't hold my breath. 
But, um, you know, a lot of people ask me questions whenever I talk about JWST, about being out there at its spot, which we're, it's called the L2 point, by the way. And it's just a spot that's a million and a half kilometers away. It's it's directly in line between the Earth and the sun. And it puts it follows the Earth along its path around the sun. And it basically uh, is a nice way for JWST to track where the Earth goes. Uh and people go, well, that's so far away. What if it gets hit by something? And the thing is, they're actually expecting it to be hit by something. They're saying it absolutely will be hit by space debris, space debris over the course of its lifespan. But it's designed to function with tiny, small holes, even in its mirrors. So if tiny bits of space debris hit it, uh, then it's designed to still be able to work and focus. And that's even true, I think, with the uh, with the sun shield or the uh, yeah the sun shield and. I, I remember when I talked to John Ehrenberg, one of the chief engineers uh, on JWST, he also pointed out to me that the L2 place is is important for a lot of reasons. But one of it is it's actually a pretty quiet spot. Not a whole lot of stuff flies through that area. So as space real estate goes, it's a pretty quiet place to be. Uh, so, But while it will get hit, it, it's not expected to get hit by huge boulders or anything like that. So just... Just the thrusters, some of them do contain hydrazine, but they have other propellant as well, and they have redundant, redundant thrusters on it. Yeah, there's this, um, there's this uh, also this thing called a momentum flap, which is actually hanging down from the back of the telescope. It's designed to offset the telescope from the solar wind because this thing is so big yeah. that they need to have something that's kind of like a rudder yeah. that sort of points it back um, back in where it needs to be. So it's got a lot of really cool technology on it. And they thought of everything. So or at least I hope they have. <laughs> I'm trusting they have. Anyway, that's right. the story of the James right, Webb. So- Space telescope. That's right. So James Webb is on its way. Everything is, is, by all accounts, is on schedule, on track to launch in October 2018. And so this is a big, 2017 will be a big year. And as there are big uh, milestones reached in the coming year, Carolyn, I'll make sure we'll tell you all about them. So uh, we're going to, I guess we'll call this a podcast, huh, Carol? You bet. All right. right. So I want to remind everybody that uh, you can ask us questions using twistpodcast at deepastronomy.com. That's our email address. So please email us and let us know. And also check this out on deep. If you go to deepastronomy.com slash twistpodcast, you will see uh, this episode. And if you, and I will have some images for you to look at as well as some links for you to click on to kind of refer to while we're talking. So we will be back next week. Thank you all for listening. And as always, Keep looking up. This Week in Space Telescope was produced by Deep Astronomy. It was written by Tony Darnell and Carol Christian. Our artwork was done by Kate Christian. And our music was by Ray Rude.